Well, it's one thing to believe in God and something entirely different to believe God. Certainly we must believe in him. We must believe that he's real and tangible, that he truly exists if we are to know him. But beyond that, if we're ever to have any chance of living the life that he intends for us to live, a life that, if not free from fear and doubt, is at least able to overcome it by his word, his promises to us, a, a life that is full of hope and joy in the midst of great difficulty, a life of unexplainable peace and everlasting love. If, if we're ever to have any hope of living that kind of life, then we must not only believe in him, but we must also believe him. We must believe what he tells us when he talks to us, what his word says to us, his promises. We must be able to trust his guidance and his correction and his directing in our lives. It's one thing to believe that God has a voice. And it's another thing to believe what that voice says to us when he speaks. And this is a critical distinction, in, in my opinion, that needs to be made loud and clear and often in the church today because there's no short supply of people in the American church at least who say that they believe in God but a lot of those same people struggle at times in believing what he's saying to them in fact you can include me in that statement I don't have any doubt that God is real and that he is who he says he is I'm, I'm full of faith when it comes to the existence and reality of the God of the Bible and yet there are times when I have trouble trusting his voice I want proof. I want guarantees. I want security. I want assurances before I just go out and act on his word to me. But why is that? Why isn't his word enough? Right? We, we believe what the doctors tell us. We believe what our accountants tell us. Occasionally, we even believe the weatherman. But when it comes to God, the one who made our bodies and provides all our supply and even controls the weather, we really struggle to believe. I think that's interesting, isn't it? Why do we have so much trouble sometimes believing what God says to us? Well, it's a matter of trust or a lack of trust, as the case may be. And at least in part, our level of trust is often based on our life experiences, which is one reason that people who have had their trust broken over and over again have a hard time believing other people when they tell them they're going to do something because their actual life experiences taught them otherwise. Their, their experiences taught them that people don't uh, do what they say they're going to do. And the more often that trust is broken, the harder it can be to gain it back. I built houses for uh, many years. I owned a construction company too, actually, small companies. And, and I had full-time employees and I had lots of subcontractors that worked for me. And uh, the biggest struggle that I always had uh, in that business was with my subcontractors, with, with those guys not doing what they said they would do. And so I would go through many of them and have to let them go and get new ones. And, and uh, they wouldn't always show up when they said they were going to show up and wouldn't always do what they said they would do. And they wouldn't always charge what they said they would charge. And so it was a real problem. And I became uh, very calloused toward them over time to the point that they would pull up when I was going to interview a new one and they'd get out of their truck, you know, and they would, they would try and sell their services to me, which is what they're supposed to do. But I got to the point where right when they would start talking, I'd literally say, you know, I would prefer to talk about how great you are after you finish the work rather than before you've even taken your tools off the truck, you know, because I'd become so incredibly 
distrusting of these workers and really very calloused about everything that came out of their mouths because of my past experiences with other people who made the same promises and then didn't follow through. So even the ones who turned out to actually be trustworthy still had to earn it first. They, they had to suffer the consequences of my mistrust because of those who had come before them, which really isn't fair to the new guy, is it? The guy who may be absolutely trustworthy, but that's how most of us are. Our level of trust becomes largely dependent upon our actual experiences in life. And so regardless of what the voice that is talking to us says or even who it comes from, we can struggle with trusting that voice when our life experiences have taught us not to trust. Unfortunately, I think sometimes we treat God with the same distrust in our hearts because we're, we're tired of being disappointed and, and hurt and let down and lied to by others. So we want him to prove it first. We want guarantees, assurances before we allow ourselves to be trustful or hopeful that he will do what he said that he will do. We, we become jaded, I think, because of our life experiences. And of course, one exception to this is little children. Children, apart from those who've been abused, for the most part, have not had enough life experiences to base their trust on yet. And so they tend to be very trusting, particularly of their parents and other adults, which is precisely why Jesus said, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Mark 10, 15, he was talking about those who possess a childlike trust and faith in him. And, and, and why did he even need to say that, though? Be, it's because he knows how deeply many of us struggle with that kind of trust. And God isn't fragile, by the way. He can handle it when we're honest with him and just tell him, look, I, I'm struggling with this. I'm having a hard time trusting your word to me. You know, God can handle that. But he still wants us to trust him like we're children again before all of the letdowns and heartache and disappointments and brokenness happened. All of that heaviness that we carry around with us because of what life has dumped on us. You know, God gets that. He knows and he can handle you being honest with him. In fact, he wants you to be honest with him. And yet, please listen to this. Even though he understands our hurt even more than we do, he requires no less of us. He still requires us to trust him like little children do. So we're going to see some great examples of people who came down on both sides of this issue in our story today. And as we go, we'll try to dissect a little more specifically some of the reasons that we struggle with trust. And hopefully by the end of it, we'll maybe see a bit clearer. Maybe we'll understand a bit deeper and hopefully we'll trust a bit more. This God who never leaves us or forsakes us, no matter what the world throws at us. All right, so this is the next installment of our sermon series, The Gospel According to John. And we'll be exploring the final portion of chapter 4 and a bit of chapter 5 this morning as we attempt to answer the question, can I really trust God? Okay, so let's pick up the story where we left off last week. John chapter 4, verses 43 through 46. After the two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine, and at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. So Jesus travels from Sukkar to Cana, which is uh, correctly pronounced 
Cana or Cana in its Hebrew origin, but we typically say Cana in the West. And it's 49 miles between Sukkar and Cana, which by foot would have taken at least two to three days. And he and his companions arrive in Galilee where his reputation preceded him. They were already familiar with his ability to perform miracles. They had already seen him turn water to wine and word was spreading fast about what this Hebrew was capable of, which is a significant point to keep in mind as we read this next part of the story. So let's keep going. Verses 47 and 48. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Okay, so the people in Galilee were coming out and welcoming Jesus because, because of his miracles, not because of who he was. And so when this man with a sick child comes out to meet Jesus and asks him to come and heal his son, Jesus actually rebukes the man and the people of Galilee first. It's, it's not that he's insensitive to the man's need, as we'll see, but his first reaction is actually a rebuke. He says, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. And the word you in that verse in the original Greek is plural. In other words, Jesus was talking to the official, but he was also referring to the Galileans as a whole, which is why Jesus testified that a prophet has no honor in his hometown. He was born in Bethlehem, of course, but Galilee was Jesus's hometown, which is not only established repeatedly throughout the New Testament, but Matthew and Mark both relate this saying by Jesus to Galilee in their gospels as well. Matthew 13, 53 through 57, and in Mark 6, 1 through 4. And so this encounter with the official stands in stark contrast to Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well that we looked at last week. At the well in Sukkar, when the Samaritan woman went back to town and told everyone about Jesus, they came out to meet him, knowing that he had supernaturally recounted the woman's past to her, and yet they didn't come seeking miracles. They came seeking him. Verse 41, it says that they believed because of his word. You see, they honored him by seeking him. The Galileans dishonored him by seeking his miracles instead of him. And so although not the main thrust of this message, it is certainly worth taking note of this comment and the subsequent rebuke by Jesus. You see, we dishonor him when we're more interested in getting something from him than we are in simply knowing him. And yet in his great compassion and love for us, he's still sensitive and responsive to our every need. Let's keep reading and we'll see how he responds to this official. Verses 49 through 54. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed in all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he'd come from Judea to Galilee. Okay, so Jesus with great compassion heals the man's son without ever even seeing the boy. And this is a great example of the purpose of miracles. He, he never performs miracles solely for the sake of the miracle. There's always a greater purpose and usually a parallel message. 
Most of the miracles performed in the New Testament were performed as a sign to unbelievers. They were performed not only out of compassion for the sick or afflicted person, and they were certainly for that reason, but they were also intended to lead people to a saving faith in Christ, which is exactly what we see here. The official initially just wants his son to be healed, and who wouldn't? When we're in desperate need, by definition, we're desperate, right? We're usually not thinking about the long term in that moment of distress. We're thinking about our dire need in that singular moment. And obviously Jesus understands that. And he's not, he's not callous to it as we see him heal the official's son. But the greater miracle is the fact that the official and his entire household, and who knows how many people after that because of them, come to faith in Christ. Okay, for a miracle to have its intended effect, there's always a spiritual renewal associated with the physical renewal. And the fascinating part about this particular miracle is that the man's faith in Jesus, the spiritual renewal, at least initially, occurred before he even witnessed the physical renewal in his son. Right after the official asked Jesus to come to his home and heal his son, verse 50 says, Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. And the immediate response is, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. So even though he came seeking a miracle first, he trusted Jesus enough to believe that his word was trustworthy. His word was enough, even without any tangible proof that his request had been granted. Okay, we can trust God at his word. Even before we experience the answer to our prayer with no tangible evidence that a miracle has occurred and even when he doesn't respond the way that we want him to, we can still trust him simply at his word. Remember, the official said to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. He had an expectation that Jesus would need to be there, that he would need to come to the man's house to heal his son, just as Jesus was there at the wedding feast to turn the water into wine. But Jesus didn't go to the man's house. He, he didn't respond to the man's request the way that the man wanted him to, but he did respond. And at nothing more than the word of Jesus, the man believed that his son would be healed just as Jesus said. It's the simplest trust. It's the trust that a child has when he falls down and scrapes his knee and his father tells him that it's going to get better. That it's going to be okay. You see, the wound is still there. It, It doesn't instantly disappear, but the child knows that it will heal because he trusts his father. And so even though the pain is still there, the wound is still there, there's a peace in that moment because he knows that the father is going to take care of him for no other reason than his father has said so. We can trust God at his word, but that means childlike faith. And of course, that all sounds really great, but how do we get there? How do we get to that point with that kind of childlike faith and trust? Because I've actually had people say to me that they trusted God's word and yet the promise never came. And so I just want to address that for a moment before we continue in the story here. Okay, first of all, from long before Jesus ever walked the earth, there have been those who have tried to sell promises in God's word that are not actually there. So before we accuse God of not honoring something that he has said, it is exceedingly important that we make certain that he actually said it and that we understand the context in which it was said. We could fill more than one sermon just going through scriptures that have been innocently misinterpreted at best or maliciously manipulated at worst to convince people that God has promised something that he never actually promised. 
So we won't take the time here to try and resolve all of that today, but one reliable approach to test the validity of a promise from God, one really good litmus test for this is to ask yourself with complete honesty what the source is. If the source is a booklet about God's promises with individual verses plucked from the Bible, if the source is a late night telecast from a preacher asking you for your money every 15 seconds, if the source is a self-proclaimed prophet seeking influence over people in the church, or if the source is even from within ourselves, but may be born out of an unholy desire for something outside of God's will, then look, it probably isn't an actual promise from God. Well, certainly, God speaks to us from the pages of the Bible. Yes, of course, God speaks to us through other people. And absolutely, God speaks to us from his Holy Spirit within us. The point is to identify the true source that is speaking before we assume it's always God. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, Paul says, Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. And the impl implication there is don't hold fast to anything else. Right? In one of John's letters, 1 John 4, 1, John says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Okay, and one way to test the spirit is to pay attention to the spiritual fruit that is coming from a person's life anytime they tell you that they have a word from God for you. Uh, honestly, I'm not exaggerating. I cannot tell you how many people over the years have come to me with a word from God for me who were promiscuous people, some of them gossips, some of them manipulative people wanting to gain influence over me. People who were always at the center of controversy in the church whose own relationships seem to constantly be in turmoil. Look, if, if someone tells you that they have a word from God for you and the spiritual fruit coming out of their own life is rotten, then run away. Don't listen to one single word that they have to say. In fact, if and when folks in that spiritual condition try to prophesy over you, you just tell them, when your life begins to look a bit more like Jesus to me, I'm all ears. But until then, I'm not interested. You don't get to speak into my life when your own life is a complete disaster because of sin and disobedience. Now, listen, I'm not trying to create some kind of requirement of perfection for ministry either. All right. If that's the case, then I have no business being up here teaching and preaching every week. Fact is, I completely trust people in my own life who are far from perfect. And I'm utterly humbled and honored that as a very imperfect person, I still get to be your pastor and teach the word of God. So please hear my heart here. I'm saying this because I love you. And from my pastor's heart, I want to protect you from some of the abuses of the spiritual gifts that I've experienced in the church. Okay, I'm talking about people whose lives are dripping with strife and contention and manipulation and constant conflict and even enmity within their own families who want to be the voice of God in my life and in your life. I'm just saying be careful about the voices that you allow into your life because sometimes they masquerade as the voice of God when they're not. Okay, but when it is the voice of God speaking to you, when it is his Holy Spirit speaking through the pages of his written word or through your spouse or someone you know well who is producing godly spiritual fruit in their life. 
Or if it comes as you pray and fast and seek him and you sense his calling and direction and promise and that agrees with the scriptures that he's given us, then listen, you can trust that word every time. Even when you don't immediately see the result of it, you can trust it. The official son was promised healing before he ever saw his son healed. The fact is some of you are waiting for a promise from God today for healing, for the right job, for restoration in a relationship or for provision, whatever it is, you can trust God at his word, even if you haven't seen one shred of proof of the answer of it yet. Because when God says it, you can count on it. You can take him at his word. Okay, let's keep going in the story now. Chapter five, verses one through five. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Okay, so Jesus goes up to Jerusalem for one of the feasts of the Jews, and there was a pool by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda. The name Bethesda means a house of mercy, which was fitting because people with all kinds of sickness and afflictions would go there and gather around the pool. In fact, if you're a history buff, if you're interested in that sort of thing, they've actually excavated that pool in that area partially. Uh, And you may have noticed as we read here that there's no verse four on the screen. Uh, Whereas if you're reading the King James Version or the New King James Version or some others, there is a verse four. The reason for that is that verse four, although found in some early manuscripts, is not found in the earliest manuscripts that we have. And The scholars, over a hundred of them who developed the ESV version that we use here, wanted to use the earliest and most reliable manuscripts available. So verse 4 has been omitted from this version, although it is included in the footnotes of the ESV. So I I didn't want you to think that we had mistakenly left that verse out, okay? And leaving it out doesn't really change the point of the story at all anyway. Verse 4, and I'll just read it to you. It says that the invalids at the pool of Bethesda were waiting for the moving of the water, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Well, verse 7, which all of the translations agree on as being valid, confirms, as we'll see in a moment, that the people were clearly waiting on something to come stir the water so that they could get in it and be healed. So uh, whether it was an angel or something else, we don't know. And so it is of no real consequence to the overall story to omit verse 4 anyway. But I also didn't want to pass that by without explaining the absence of it, okay? And so Jesus walks up to a man who's been paralyzed for 38 years, which is longer than a lot of people even lived in the first century. And, And he walks up to him and he says something very peculiar. Let's read it together. Verses 6 through the first half of verse 9. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. So first of all, verse 6 says that Jesus knew that the paralyzed man had already been there a long time, just like he knew the Samaritan woman's life story without ever uh, her ever having to share it. And Jesus also knew why the man was lying right next to the pool, 
because that's the place where people went to be healed. So why bother to ask the man if he wanted to be healed? Well, it's because Jesus also knew that for the invalid, being healed after 38 years of paralysis was going to mean that everything in his life would change drastically. They're criminals who spend most of their lives behind bars and they become institutionalized. They can't handle the drastic change of life when they're finally released from prison. And so many of them will deliberately commit another crime for the express purpose of going back to prison, back to what they know, what, what they're familiar with, because life outside of the prison seems impossible to them. They're unable to cope with the change of being free from the life that they have become accustomed to, even though it kept them contained from all the possibilities of a better life outside of the prison walls. Truth is, there are a lot of people who become so accustomed to limitations that have been placed on their lives, whether they're physical limitations or situational limitations, that when they're finally given the opportunity to be free from those limitations, they either reject that freedom outright or they sabotage it so they can remain in the only life that seems possible to them. I have a friend who's significantly hearing impaired. He wears two hearing aids and can read lips and use sign language. And I asked him one day after, uh, not long after cochlear implants were developed, which in some cases can significantly restore hearing to those without it. I, I asked him if he found out that the implants would work for him, would he get them? And he said to me, probably not. And I was baffled by that. And I asked him why. And he said, well, because even though I can't hear everything with my hearing aids on, I have the option to turn them off and hear nothing if I want to. And I've I've become quite comfortable, he said, with silence. He even said, I tried to go to bed one night and leave my hearing aids on. And and I thought I was going to lose my mind. There's no way that I could ever sleep like that because I've spent my whole life sleeping in complete silence. See, to him, life without the option to turn the sound of the world completely off seems impossible. And really, it's not that hard to understand if you think about it. And, And so Jesus is standing over this man who spent 38 years not being able to move on his own. 38 years being carried around by others. 38 years being looked after and cared for and waited on for his every need. And the moment that his body is healed, all of that, everything is going to change. And Jesus knew that. So he's asking this man, do you really understand what's about to happen here? Are you willing to make this change? Because it's going to seem impossible to you to care for yourself for the first time in your life, to have to work and earn your own way to maybe even have to care for others. Jesus wasn't just asking him if he wanted to be able to walk. Jesus was asking, are you willing to do what I'm about to command you to do? Because if you are, everything about your life will change. See, we can we can trust God at his command, even when it seems impossible. We can trust him. In Matthew 19, 26, Jesus said, with God, all things are possible. He didn't say only the things that we believe are possible are possible. No, he said all things are possible with God. And so when he commands us to take our first step in a new direction, into a new ministry or a new relationship or a a new church, a new city, a new job, he says, look, are you ready for this? 
because everything is about to change. But you have to be willing to do what may seem impossible to you right now. But you can trust me because with me, all things are possible. You see, it's never been a matter of God's ability to make the impossible possible. It's a matter of our willingness to accept that challenge. He never calls anyone to easy or comfortable or predictable. And so very often we hear his voice and we think that we're better off staying where we are because it's what we know. So we miss the real freedom that comes without the limitations that we live under when we refuse to heed the call and command of God in our lives. I mean, we read this story and the man answers the command of Jesus. And after asking the man if he wanted to be healed, And he answers Jesus that he's been trying to make that happen. Jesus commands him to take that first step. He says, get up, take up your bed and walk. And we we tend to think, oh, how nice. This man who couldn't walk can now get around on his own. But honestly, think for just a minute how profoundly his life had changed in an instant because he trusted the command of Jesus. In many ways, his life got harder became more challenging. Just think about how much more would be expected of him now that the limitations that he was living under had been removed by God. You see, it's it's the same for us today. God is ever calling us to step out, to trust him at his command, to do what seems to be utterly impossible, but it's not impossible. In fact, with him, it is completely possible. But the moment... The moment that we take that first step, that we trust his command, everything changes. And one of the most significant changes that occurs when he removes the limitations that have been placed on us or or maybe that we've placed on ourselves is that all of a sudden far more is expected of us. And it won't always be easy. In fact, it will most assuredly be difficult at times, but the freedom that you experience is indescribable. When you shake off the limitations of security and safety and comfort and predictability, you'll have a lot more to be responsible for, but the freedom that you'll experience in your life in Christ is infinitely more rewarding than anything the limitations can ever provide for you. It's it's frightening. I can tell you from firsthand experience, it's frightening to take that first step when God commands you to move. I believe the invalid man by the pool must have been terrified the moment Jesus told him to get up and walk, but he trusted the command of Jesus. And so can we. Let's finish our story for today. The rest of verse nine through verse 17. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, the man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. Thanks a lot, right? And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. 
So although there's nothing in the Old Testament that forbids someone from carrying their bedroll on the Sabbath, the religious Jews developed hundreds of their own rules around the Old Testament law, including a code that forbade anyone from carrying an object from one domain into another. Scottish theologian William Barclay wrote, The rabbis of Jesus' day argued that a man was sinning if he carried a needle in his robe on the Sabbath. They even argued as to whether he could wear his artificial teeth or his wooden leg. So these religious Jews were far more concerned about Jesus violating their man-made rules than they were about a man who couldn't walk for 38 years being healed. And when they questioned him about it, rather than arguing against the merits of their silly rules, Jesus simply tells them, my father is working until now and I am working. In other words, Jesus says, I trust my father's command. I trust his word, not yours. And so I'm doing what he's commanded me to do, what he is doing. See, Jesus trusted the Father because he knew the Father. But the religious Jews didn't trust God. Instead, they trusted in men and men's rules. Why? Because they didn't know God. Okay? To trust God, we must know him. The Pharisees couldn't trust him because they didn't know him. And they were instead so bound by the limitations that they'd placed on themselves by their own rules that they could no longer see the forest for the trees. In fact, it still goes on today. David Gusick shares this story in his commentary on this passage. He writes, This devotion to the rabbi's interpretation of the Sabbath law continues in modern times. An example is found in an April 1992 news item. Tenants let three apartments in an Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground while they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath would violate Jewish law. Observant Jews are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. In the half hour it took the rabbi to decide yes, the fire spread to two neighboring apartments. It seems so strange, doesn't it? These religious men didn't want to know who healed the paralyzed man. They wanted to, to know who told them that he could carry his mat. Never mind the fact that at some point that day, two people carried him to the pool. And later on that day, they would have to carry him home on that Sabbath. So in truth, Jesus saved somebody from a lot of work on the Sabbath when he, when he healed the man. But that's not what mattered to these religious people. People who didn't trust Jesus, even though the evidence of his trustworthiness was right there in front of them. It's because they didn't know him. You see, it's not that the religious Jews didn't believe that there was a God. They most certainly did. The problem is they didn't know him, which takes us back to the beginning of this message. It's one thing to believe there is a God. It's something altogether different to believe him when he speaks to you. And these religious Jews didn't believe Jesus when he spoke to them because they didn't know him. And they couldn't trust someone they didn't know. In fact, none of us can. To trust God is to know him. There is no other way. When we took our first step of faith into this journey of full-time vocational ministry, I never could have imagined that we would end up here doing what we're doing now. There were times of great uncertainty, significant discomfort. At times, there was a very real lack of security. But I can tell you that as of today, I genuinely have yet to figure out how to adequately express just how fulfilled that I am in this life. How full of joy and satisfaction that I get to serve him in the way that he created me to. 
So I haven't figured out yet how to say to you exactly how much you mean to me and how happy I am being your pastor and serving this church. But what I can say without reservation or hesitation is that I'm absolutely convinced that there is no other way to experience this kind of joy and happiness and fulfillment in life outside of knowing Christ and trusting his word and his command. And the thing is, I truly, deeply want the kind of fulfillment that I have in my life for each one of you. Honestly, I long for every single one of you to know this kind of fulfillment and completeness. And I'm, I'm sure that many of you do. But for those who have yet to experience that, it will never come outside of a relationship where you completely trust Jesus Christ. And I still struggle sometimes. I still wrestle with trusting him at times in my own life, not because he can't be trusted, because he can. The reason that I struggle with trust sometimes, which is the reason that we all struggle with trusting him at times, is because I don't know him well enough yet. You see, there's always more. There's always more of him to know. We can never exhaust our relationship with God. It is inexhaustible. And the only limitations in that relationship are the ones that we've placed on ourselves. If we want to trust him more, then we need to know him more. So, can we really trust God? We absolutely can. And we have to. If we're ever to experience the life that we all long for, the life that we were created for. Let's pray.